Welcome. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight, we're going to be dealing with, of course, many spiritual subjects, including uh, a subject that I have dealt with in, several times in the past. Uh, today, we're going to be ta- talking about the subject in relationship to being able to understand how to determine which side of the coin we're going to be on. You'll understand what I mean in a minute. And uh, we're going to be dealing dealing with some elements of physics and uh, science, but also some uh, metaphysical principles. And beyond that, uh, just what I would call almost common sense. But for a lot of people, it may not be so common. And that's the reason I'm going to be presenting this show in a way which has not been covered exactly before. Now, what is this show about? It's two scenarios for a future world, part three. (laughs) Okay, what happened with one and two? Uh, One was about 1992. Yeah, at uh, around that time, I wrote an article and gave a lecture or more on uh, the subject, and it uh, went from 1992 to, well, through 2007. And what the lecture was about was what would happen if two different types of series of events in different fields of human endeavor, civilization, uh, were to occur, and then what we could expect then for the future after that point. And the predictions were that by 2007, uh, the end of, I guess, 2007 would be the best way to say, state it, if um, at least more than uh, half of the areas that I covered, and mostly this was in the actual lecture more than the article, uh, didn't move towards enlightenment or light, then the world would start becoming significantly darker including things that uh, looked like maybe through the 90s that I predicted would happen, uh, would get turned around and become the opposite of what it looked like 10 years, say, earlier. So by 1997 to 2000, it may have looked rosy for the world, Uh, yet, yet, uh, it instead would go awry if certain... Uh, factors did not change about the ability to see evil and for people to be able to uh, become more spiritual. And even some of it had to do with uh, what I and the group of people that I try to do some spiritual service with were doing. So it all kind of related to a lot of different things, which I'm going to talk about today. But today I want to talk about it in terms of being able to understand be conscious of this scenario as it unfolds coming going forward from this point. Because we're way past 2007 now. We're seven more years past that point. And things have gotten much worse. Uh, so we're on the road, <laughs> the wrong road, <laughs> the road of darkness, uh, at least as the world is concerned. And this is about the world. It's not about a specific country. Of course, I live in the United States in the uh, United States, and we're a leading country, not the leading country. And uh, that's a big issue because we're we're failing. I mean, we're really not doing that well. 
And so uh, that being the case, it's important to uh, add that into the ingredient list to come out with what we might have. For what I'll say is going to be probably at least the next 10 to 15 years. In that range is what we're talking about for today's show. I'm not going to go real far into the future. And I'm trying to help people to be able to determine for themselves what the two scenarios might look like and how that uh, will unfold. Uh, Let me start with this idea. Uh, First of all, I'm talking about the question of how light in the seven different areas of what we call rays affects uh, our planet and how people respond in terms of their civilization and particularly their individual societies within uh, the whole world civilization and how it is that we either become more enlightened or we get darker and what the signs of that are, how a person could check on, find out, be more aware of it, and what we can do to make some changes uh, both on an individual level and preferably uh, more in, uh, we'll call it, a united level uh, together to make some improvement in what could be a a uh, not-too-friendly place to be. All right, so let me start with this. Um, I'll go backwards in time and try to describe that in the original two scenarios that I presented, and I did a subsequent one or two shows, actually, on this, one with K, uh, KXM AM early on when I was on the radio. That was only like a 45-minute show. And then uh, I did one uh, a couple of years ago that was sort of an extension of the two scenarios concept, but not anything like tonight's show. Uh, and now I'm doing this one, which is really more of, we'll say, the consciousness part of the whole issue. In other words, how can we become more conscious? But about this issue, the um, the older version, in the older version, what I concluded was the following. Uh, the Soviet Union had just uh, come apart, and my prediction was that by the year 2000 or earlier, uh, there would be uh, a change in the world, we'll say, structure involved with uh, some of the most dark elements of what was communism and what was totalitarianism, and that there would be uh, a a hopeful uh, um, regard for the rights of people. But I also suggested, now this is 1992, it was towards the beginning, that, um, that what was going on already in what was then the Clinton administration, uh, had the hallmark of a failed uh, standard for there being freedom, particularly with people of uh, Islamic uh, background, and that this would lead to, after years of uh, genocide in the Balkans, uh, the potential for a intensification in a movement against both the United States and all other countries that are supposed to be purportedly uh, serving freedom. And what I said then was that uh, 
using as an example that there was going to be a tremendous backlash because um, the president at the time, who was uh, Clinton, uh, was holding back, dealing with what was going on um, in, we'll say, the uh, the extermination, if not um, also enslavement to some extent, of people of Muslim belief in uh, Sarajevo and uh, uh, other uh, cities that had marked amounts of Islamic uh, faith people. And it was being carried out by you know the, the Serbs who were trying to uh, become the dictator of that region and to take over what was the Soviet uh, stranglehold. And it was, in fact, both a religious, uh, we'll call it anti-religious war, but really underlying it was, the again, the old communist kind of totalitarianism, and that was being uh, forced on and destroy, to destroy uh, part of the population with the excuse of it being against the, the Muslim people there. This was the seeds for what we call terrorism, uh, later, I suggested then, this is 1992, that by the year 2000, if we didn't deal with that issue, and we didn't, and I kept harping on it, just the way you hear me harping about Obama right now and other things, kept harping on it, I said that what will happen is we're going to have a extremely, extremely violent Islamic uprising against Western values and principles, because although we eventually went in and did something about it, we did it about two and a half years late, and a quarter of a million people to a half a million people were murdered in that period of time. And it's turned out to be even larger than that in likelihood. But that, that's, those are the ones that were murdered by internment. Another million people died because of the conditions of the war itself and other other factors. So this was a huge, a huge disappointment, a tremendous, tremendous uh, problem, particularly when 10 years or five years earlier, even while the Soviet empire still existed, these people were freer and uh, were moving ahead. Sarajevo, that's, you know, that was a big deal. And now they were destroyed. So, to me, we did not come to their aid in a timely fashion. We did so reluctantly, and we're drawn in uh, somewhat by NATO and other issues, but it was really because uh, it was politically not tenable anymore for Clinton. And also it drew attention away from some of the other problems he was starting to have. So, in reality, uh, this was the evil that brought it about, and it was laid to us, on us. I said we would pay karmically for this. Not that I wanted it. Not that I fully even understood how. But I suggested it. And I suggested it. It would be soon after 2000 or so. Well, if you remember your history, which I'm sure you do, within a year of that time, we had an attack. But we had an attack just within the same period of time that I'm talking about earlier on the World Trade Center beforehand. That was just semi-thwarted. So, you know, that was like 93. So just a year 
uh, or maybe a year and a half after I, I gave this lecture or lectures and talked about this stuff and and you know kept talking about it to some extent. That's when all that occurred. Uh, it's unfortunate. Now you might say, well, how in the heck could you know that? But that's what today's show is about. You see, I'm not a fortune teller. It's a matter of consciousness. If you're really conscious, the ability to be inclusive and understand the knowledge you already have, you can see all kinds of things that are going to happen or are happening that other people cannot and understand them. So you have the awareness of them, plus a greater awareness, plus you have much greater understanding. Okay, so there's an example of one of the issues that I uh, proposed, and there were a whole bunch of other factors. One of the things that I also proposed was that uh, that the modality of using the Internet and the expansion of that was going to be, uh, at first, a big economic boom, but because, in part, there was, we'll call it, a desire to too quickly commercialize it, and uh, at the same time, not protect it. I mean, this is a kind of an odd concept. Uh, and the reason it wasn't protected was because, although Clinton at first tried to put into effect that you couldn't tax things on the Internet, it, the very idea of bringing it up was in a limited way. We'll make it for X number of years rather than you can't tax, period. And there were other factors that came into play that were the seeds for what is going to become the next future scenario, which we'll talk about after these 40 minutes probably. So you can start seeing here now that there's there, there are all these kind of, we'll call them patterns, that were established at a very early time. I tried to bring it to the, well, say, consciousness of the people that I taught others that I communicated with, but at that time, it was so far removed from what people believed could happen that they didn't care about it. Uh, When I talked about the slaughters that were going on in the Balkans, uh, and that it was a horrible thing, and that there needed to be something done about it immediately, not something we would wait, I also talked about what was going on in Africa in the same vein, and uh, unfortunately we reacted wrongly to what was taking place rather than correctly. Uh, All the stuff that was happening at that particular time brought on many new contested issues. And then I talked about Russia. At that point, the Soviet Union was gone, and I said the United States needs to immediately go into Russia and help teach them about capitalism and help teach them how to deal with corruption because they don't know how to deal with either of those things. And I said they've been under the guise for generations, a generation being 20 years, each 20 years, um, of a totalitarian evil form of government, communism. And they needed assistance. The assistance wasn't to go over it there and just start businesses, which unfortunately did happen, but rather they needed to be taught 
education was the key to the success in that country. Well, we didn't do that. We went in and we exploited. We exploited their economic system. We gave them loans that they couldn't repay, and then we tried to twist their arms about certain factors politically. Uh, we upheld the alcoholism of their then uh, uh, leader, even though he was a brave guy. He was an alcoholic. We needed to clear and help the situation by bringing both democracy into full bloom and freedom, most importantly, into the minds of all the people. They didn't understand what freedom was. They All they knew was somebody took care of you. They gave you a job to find uh, fleas on the, on the backs of uh, dogs and crazy things like that. And if you got three, three fleas a day, then you got paid your normal sum of money, and that's it. Crazy things. They, they, they didn't know what to, what to do with themselves. And the other thing we didn't do, which I suggested very strongly, was to pay them for all of their nuclear weapons. Give them food, give them other supporting income for, for what needed to be done, which is to dismantle their nuclear system completely. That's what I suggested. And to remove them. We had about a three-year window to do this. And uh, we could have brought it about for, with the right incentives. And for every weapon we destroyed with them, we could have destroyed some of ours as well. You see, there was a, a way to do quid pro quo, even though there were other countries that had nuclear weapons. The, most, the next greatest nuclear power only had about 200 of them. And there was, there was also a, a time at that point to bring about uh, a change in our relationship with China. Because of Tiananmen Square and what had occurred in 89, there was a lot of cold cooling off and a lot of contention. We should have not bought any more products from China and trans transferred half of our business to Russia, but only as we democratized them. Those two countries at one time were, of course, allies. That would have greatly weakened China's hold on economy, and we wouldn't have become subservient to China. And we would have built our own economy much better because we would have enjoyed increases in the economy by doing business with a company that was emerging instead of struggling and failing, as Russia did. All these issues I included in my explanations back then, it is a terrible, crying shame because as I look back, I was woefully correct and terribly, terribly sad to see what took place. All right. The, the other side of the coin was that I didn't particularly care for the ways in which, um, uh, we'll say, the principles that were so important to our country were being wasted and thrown away. Give you an example. Uh, the uh, first uh, roles, we'll say, of a president and the original Bush. Uh, was to attempt to uh, reduce the size of government and reduce the 
control of government over people's lives. Uh, he came into the office to do that. Now, this is right before, of course, the two scenarios. And he failed because he was a progressive Republican. Now, what's that mean? It means that in terms of his politics, he, he his whole family is like this. This is why the second Bush, George, was pretty much the same, only worse. And, you know, you, you have a situation where these folks think that they're being, we'll say, kinder, gentler. They even call themselves that, gentle conservatives or gentle moderates or whatever they think of themselves. But what they weren't doing, I don't care if you, you know, to me, I'm I'm pretty much a libertarian. I'm not really a Republican or Democrat or anything like that. But, but, it, but the issue here is, is how do you see, how do you see what it means to be an American and free? If freedom means that the government provides it for you, then you're not American. And if freedom means that uh, the protection of freedom is by the size of government becoming greater, you're not only not an American, you're not conscious enough to understand what that means. You've lost the concept of what it means. Now, Progressives believe those things. They believe, unfortunately, that uh, large government, with people who are smarter controlling those who are less smart, is the uh, grand plan. And in addition to that, possibly maybe even worse than that idea, not only is large government the answer, but the rights of people don't come from God because progressives don't predominantly don't uh, believe in God. They believe that uh, the government is God, effectively. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, George Bush the first and George Bush the second, they, they were religious, they believed in God. They believed in God up to a point, and that point was until it comes to protecting the rights of people. And then they believe it's the government that does the quote-unquote protection by controlling people. And that isn't the way it should be. People should control the government, and people should control their right to be heard by their government and to restrict the government and to redress the issues they have with their government, and to sue in parts of the government, such as courts, for their own rights. But the government shouldn't be doing that. Now, I understand the background in our history in, in the United States. In the 50s and 60s, it became necessary in order to break the hatred of bigotry against uh, uh, people of color uh, to, um, to in, we'll say, evoke governmental regimentation on some states and others, groups, uh, 
that were as a group fighting people, and the people couldn't stand up for themselves. That's a little bit different, and it's part of the reason we can't come to an agreement about this, because when the rights of a minority are ad hoc for the entire minority being attacked, it may take government intervention, and sometimes absolutely does, in order to solve that problem. That's way different than going to the progressive idea that the government does this in virtually all classes, all cases, pretty much on an individual basis. For a group, I can understand it if that group cannot, as a minority, be protected. That's what the Constitution says, if you read it carefully, especially the amendments. But not on an individual basis. The 14th Amendment is for groups. It's not for individuals. And there's a good reason for it, because the individual loses freedom when the government has to support them by taking away their rights and making decisions for them about what or they should or shouldn't have as rights. It's a very, very difficult problem, and you've got to keep it clear. Most people aren't that clear about it, and they get confused. So it's all of that stuff that has taken place in our past, going back to slavery. Of course, slavery is the real cause of most of the evil that has inflicted our country. It's a huge thing. And and the other side of it, when I'm talking about slavery, I'm not just talking about it against black people. I'm talking about slavery of women before uh, before they tried to get rid of most of the shackles of it, which really took, you know, a long time. So it's women, and it's longer for women as far as how long it took them than it has been for, for black people. Women came after, not before. So the real point here, but both were subjected to terrible uh, restrictions and losses of rights. And that's the kind of stuff that may take some governmental interaction because you've got a class. Women aren't even a minority. They're the majority, but they they were a minority in the way they were treated. Now, this comes back from ages of time. In this particular timeline, with the development of uh, humanity, males have the upper hand. There has been times in the past where it hasn't been quite that way, but it has been for a long time. Virtually all recorded history is that way. All right. So... We also see that the progressives were formed by domination of women who were trying to get their own rights and saw the progressive movement as something that they think could become part of. Margaret Sanger. Yeah. Heavy, heavy duty progressives. You see, so these these areas of protection of rights merged in the wrong way and became part of the minds of people, well as an example. The Bushes became part of their their mantra because they confused what historically made some sense and used it for uh, going after the rights of individuals. Because all progressives make that same mistake, whether they're Republican, Democratic, or no anything, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if they're religious or not, because some progressives are strictly political progressives, and not really social progressives. Social progressives are truly atheists. 
but that's a, you know that's okay. I'm not against atheists per se. Uh, I'm against them using the progressive movement as a form of limiting the rights of people who who have a relationship with God. And not all of them do that, because as I said, the majority of progressives are more political than they are social, but still a strong minority of them are both. All right, so let's look at how this works then. We have uh, some darkness, some evil seeds in our country. One of the worst, by the way, besides progressives, etc., is corruption. What is corruption? Corruption is the use of power to derive wealth at the cost of others. And usually it's the taking of power from others as well. And it's the removing of others' rights and abilities to exercise them. And that's what corruption does. And corruption is a is an evil. It, it, anything that deals as I just described it would be certainly described as an evil. The United States has been corrupt almost since its inception and probably before it was even the United States. Now, why is that the case? What? Why would a country with such great ideas and so many people coming here to be free and be independent, and why would it become one of the most corrupt countries? It isn't the most by any stretch corrupt country. I mean, banana republics are much more corrupt. But it's a corrupt country in relative terms compared to the consciousness of the people that live here, which is fairly high. And the relative levels of wealth that everybody has, you would you, you'd have to be surprised to believe it is as corrupted as it is. Where does that come from? And the answer is kind of a, a strange one. In order to remove corruption, you don't you can't get rid of it by just making laws, making it illegal to be corrupt. I mean, look at the president of the United States right now. Does he obey the laws that say he can't do things? No, of course not. Corrupt people by nature uh, don't obey law. It's the whole idea. You got to you know, part of it to get power over others. Unless the laws are meant that way, and they are if you go to places like Russia today. But, you know, I mean, that's not here, okay? So, what is the way you can deal with this? Because corruption, from the standpoint of most people, seems untouchable literally untouchable you can't you can't uh you can't stamp it out because it's like everywhere and it's so formidable and um the people who try usually get hurt sometimes killed it's a pretty serious issue right well here's here's the way it works if you want to get rid of corruption what you do is you limit the ability for people to exercise control and power. Our government came into being by the attempt to control the use or abuse of power through three uh, fairly evenly powered divisions of government to oppose each other so that government would go sludgingly slow in its ability to legislate or control anything and would be relatively impotent. It was a grand idea, and it had only a few major, major 
problems. The first was that it incorporated slavery. How in the heck can you have a government that is fair, honest, not corrupt, enlightened, and extols and permits and extols slavery? You can't. You see, the two were incompatible right from the get-go. And the slavery, again, was not just about black people, but it certainly was a major issue, right? It was also, just to a lesser extent, women. It's a horrible idea. So I'm not saying women are anywhere anywhere near as enslaved as, as people of color, especially in the southern parts of southern states of the United States, but but it's still added to the whole fact. Okay, what's the other problem? Well, that's a big one right there. That was that was a major major mistake. Uh, the only way that it could have been accomplished probably was by Thomas Jefferson, who just plain screwed up. He was a third level initiate, and you know he just couldn't bring himself to do what he should have been doing. He was effectively married uh, as a second wife uh, to a black woman for longer than he was married to a white woman. <laughs> In reality, if you go through the number of years. And yet, um, he couldn't even free his own slaves. He semi-did in certain ways, but he didn't free them, really. And, and he, he, he couldn't bring himself to fight the pressures and the forces against him otherwise. And I'm sure that he regrets that. I regretted that. Okay, so uh, that's that's one of the big problems. That that started the country off allowing corruption to take place because of it, because of the balance wasn't really there. Uh there was a lack of balance because a huge amount of the population wasn't part of the the country wasn't part of the system. They were being abused and used. And that even includes women. They didn't have the vote, remember that. Okay, so um, now what was also wrong with the United States, if you go back to its inception and wrong with the issues, the Constitution was a compromise. It took several months for the uh, founders to work out their, um, we'll say, inclinations towards uh, how to limit government. And they thought, finally, that they only could come to an agreement about one method, which was the balance of uh, the different parts of government, three parts of government. And they thought that would be good enough, except one thing. It might have been, if they didn't have slavery, and one other thing, uh, but that they thought that would work, except they didn't think far, or couldn't think far enough into the future to realize that the government would grow, become much more complex anyway, and people would find ways around the idea of the three parts of government being a way of preventing abuse. And they did. There's been a number of breaches, mostly during the last five years. Mostly. Some of it came under Bush um, too, as well, George Bush, uh, the second. Uh, 
So it's uh, you got you've got to look at it from from the standpoint that there there was um, a misunderstanding about where we were headed. The, you know, I mean, one place was a rather agrarian type environment with not very many people, and look where we are today. And we grew in size, in physical size as well. Also, uh, uh, the uh, last part of the equation, uh, if you want to call it that, was the way we treated the American Indians. Uh, and, And maybe that's the worst part of it. You see, what we did is we segregated. They were the first people that we segregated uh, from the system and said, well, you're really not Americans. We'll make you little nations. We'll give you some rights. Isn't that convenient? And this started us down the road to a foreign policy that followed our domestic policy. And we're going to talk about that in the remaining part of the show, but it's very interesting. So how we how we dealt with the Indians started to color how we dealt with all kinds of other issues in our future. And, of course, the way we dealt with the Indians was to basically uh, commit genocide on some and imprison and enslave others uh, to make sure they did not have the rights that we have. Uh, and to bifurcate whatever rights they had into giving them back to some false kind of uh, Indian government that was really controlled by the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so, in reality, the whole thing was a sham, and we were just dictators, controlling them and destroying their culture and their lives. And destroying their eventual numbers until they dwindled to the size they are today. This was a great tragedy. And there's more to to this, but we're going to go to a break here. I think that it's important right now for us to begin to start seeing that where we came from has led us to this issue of corruption. And when we get back, I'll, I'll try to sum this up so that you can see why it's such a problem and how we can change it. So we'll be back in about two and a half minutes, give or take, from right now. Hun, what book are you reading? It's a novel, kind of, about romance, love, and spiritual life in general. Kind of a novel? What do you mean? Well, it's based on some real-life experiences and even real characters. Some of their experiences are fascinating and remarkable. I can't put this book down. How come the title is Afterlife Love? That's part of the fascination. This book describes the afterlife in intricate detail and even explains why things are the way they're explained. But how can anyone write about or know that? Some of the characters travel out of body to some places that people who've already died also go to. I'm finding it completely believable because it all makes sense and fits into a bigger picture for me. Hun, what happens to these people? You can read it for yourself when I'm done if you want. Better yet. I'll get my own copy so we can discuss it while we read. Let me see. I'll write down the title. It's Afterlife Love by Niles McFlower. M-A-C-F-L-O-U-E-R. 
Afterlife Love is available in some bookstores and from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com or 480-966-3132. That's 480-966-3132. Hi, everyone. Since childhood, I've had questions about my life and life in general that I couldn't find adequate answers to. Questions like, why am I here? Why are others here? Does the universe have a purpose? And how does that relate to my life? More recently, I've been wondering what happens when we die, especially the reasons why. I'm more of a doubter than a believer in many things, and answers that include the whys allow me to think and figure out the truth for myself. I've been reading a book, Life's Hidden Meaning. This one book contains more answers, including the whys, than all other sources I've read or heard. It's amazing to me that every one of my questions has been thoroughly answered. More importantly, I have found that all of these answers so far have checked out to be true. I hope this message helps some of you in your quest for better understanding. The name of this wonderful book is, again, Life's Hidden Meaning by metaphysician Niles McFlower. Some bookstores sell it. I got my copy directly from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com. Life's hidden meaning may enlighten your mind and bring some peace and joy to your heart. We're back. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight, we're talking about how to become more conscious about uh, a an idea, which is the two scenarios for a future world. I call it part three. And I was talking about one of the major elements that's wrong here in the United States, uh, which affects the whole world because we're a leading country. If we can't get rid of corruption in our own government, the idea that we're going to get rid of it in other governments, or have be able to do anything about it, is probably ridiculous. Because you can't say, do as I teach, not as I do, because that just doesn't work. And even with children, there's a great poem. Children, uh, children are what they live, not what you try to teach them. Okay, so getting back to uh, what I was getting at, Corruption became the problem because our dealings with other countries was from the perspective of all the corrupt people that were in our country, and we encouraged corruption, whether willfully or subconsciously, by us being corrupt everywhere. And uh, I mentioned the Indians, American Indians, because the corruption involved with Indians was even greater than it was with slavery. I mean, talking about, you know, uh, with, with, with the slavery of, of black people, because the American Indians were completely forgotten. Slavery was, on one side was handled by a commerce uh, act and certain other things where slaves were property, but at least they, there was there, there was some rules about uh, how that property was treated. Not in human rights terms. I'm just talking about his property. But you might say, well, that's not good. Well, it's horrible. But believe it or not, it was less corrupt 
with the the American Indians, the whole thing was permitted to be corrupt. It was encouraged to be corrupt uh, because we wanted their land, we wanted anything in the land or on the land, we wanted them as a people to be also subservient and, and semi-slaved. Uh, we, we sought in every way to abuse this part of our population, and we didn't make them part of our population even after the Civil War, where eventually black people gradually became part of the population, uh, not so with the American Indians. Now, this affected uh, more and more of the corruptive side of government. And as you had uh, large cities being developed, like New York City, as an example, in Chicago, those in San Francisco, those cities were um, composed of the new people coming into the United States, and those people were easily uh, misled by corrupt politicians because they were promised ways so they could climb the social ladder and economic ladder more quickly, and they always believed themselves to be behind the eight ball because the system was corrupt, and so it kind of made them that way. And they weren't given the same level of rights in many circumstances that other uh, citizens had. And so they uh, became part of the corruption themselves and or became subservient to it. And this came out of, strangely, how we treated these other people in our history before. I'm talking about women, talking about black people, and especially the American Indians. We had the attitude that we could take whatever we wanted, we could control in any way we chose to control, and government had the right to do these things. Remember, we talked about corruption being anti-rights. And so then we started dealing with other countries more and more, particularly as we got closer to the 20th century, and our dealings with other countries was to treat the governments in those countries as, well, you guys could be corrupt like us and we'll all, we'll all win together. Just enslave your population if you aren't already doing it. In some cases they were, in other cases they weren't. It didn't matter because we were on the side of corruption. The United States has been highly corrupt for its inception, since its inception. Okay, how do you, how do you change that? Well, the Constitution the United States, was meant to limit the, um, the rights of government in the face of the rights of the people. But it relied too much on the checks and balances that were incorporated in its original design and not enough on direct intervention of the growth of government. It was thought by some of the founders that they those limitations on government needed to be incorporated directly in the Constitution, just as the rights of the people were in the first ten amendments. And they wanted to put in ten more amendments that limited government. Well, that never happened. And it didn't happen because some of the people that were founders were also somewhat corrupt, and they wanted more power since they were going to be the originating government. And in other cases, it gradually... Uh, became even more of a problem because as there was a need, and there has been a growing need to limit government, uh, it hasn't happened because of corruption. So as the government becomes more corrupt, it protects its own corruption 
by not wanting to limit its power. So the answer is you need about 12 amendments, in my opinion, that would limit the size and power of government so that it can be returned to the people and prevent corruption at the same time. And oddly, the 12 amendments I've come up with, I'm not going to be able to deal with them on tonight's show because it doesn't fit into the subject completely. But those 12 amendments I've come up with would do exactly that. They would prevent the government from doing all the interfering things we say. It would force the government to start dealing with other countries in much more we'll say, honest and non-corrupt ways. And it would tremendously limit the power of the people in government, as well as the government, period, cutting its size down by uh, about almost two-thirds. We'll say 60% probably is that the right number. So the, so the actual size of government will be smaller. The power that government has will be much less. And um, we would have uh, a government in which corruption would almost disappear. I'm not saying you can get rid of corruption in all cases, but it would usually surface and be stamped out pretty quick and people would end up in prison or fines of some sort. It it wouldn't be like anything like it is today. I mean, you know, K Street and all uh, all that stuff would be gone. And it wouldn't be gone because because you're preventing people from exercising their First Amendment rights to try to convince people that they're company they represent good for the government, it would be because government government wouldn't have any control or power to give to the companies to do that in the first place. They wouldn't be motivated. Even so, they, they would find no benefit. And believe me, people don't put out hundreds, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars to get nothing. <laughs> they expect to get something, right? And get more than they're putting out. So that's what we need to do, the restriction is of government is the answer to our quest, but it has to be very intelligently done, very carefully done. And uh, we'll talk about a bit of that as we talk about the two scenarios, but it won't be going through each of the constitutional amendments or all that. It's just because, after all, that's just the United States. I'm talking about the whole world. Today it's about the future world. Someday we'll limit it to, to this country. But, it, it, but because we are the leading country in the world, it's important for people to understand what's wrong here. What's wrong? And these are the things that I brought up, mentioned, discussed in the 1990s. And here we are, 2014, and things have gotten a lot worse. So where, where are we headed? Well, if Things, if you go, if you were to track our present course, the world is becoming much less free, much less intrusive into everybody's right to be. Uh, the concept of privacy will not exist. But it, beyond that, the scale of invasion of government into people's lives is at a new level, a new kind. Because technology permits it, we must realize that to protect ourselves, we have to keep up with the rate of technology development to limit government at the same rate, or else 
we're all going to become slaves. It's true. And we're moving in that direction because those that seek power, sometimes for its own sake and a lot of times for its sake and additional wealth, uh, are doing so at a greater level, almost on a daily basis it's growing. I'm not just talking in in the United States now. I am talking about the whole world. And the very thing that was so great about when I wrote two scenarios the first time, the Soviet Union had just fallen, and I predicted that it would come back. It would come back under another dictatorial leader. And sure enough, that's what, if you are watching the news, since 2007 with Georgia, yes, I know I picked the year, didn't I? And then now uh, with Ukraine, it's the beginning of the end. We're moving towards totalitarianism as being an acceptable form of people being governed. We're accepting it. Why? Because the President of the United States wants that for himself, if he could have it. And he certainly enjoys seeing it in other places. Now, you may say, oh, well, you're crazy. He never says anything like that. Well, it's when he does. I don't care what the guy says. <laughs> I mean, if you listen to what he says uh, every other day, it's a lie from the last time. So, I mean, you know, the guy's probably got more uh, more lying done than any president in history. Um, and he has bad intentions. His intentions are to grow government and control people because that is what he likes. He also doesn't particularly concern himself with the fact that what he's doing ultimately because he's the leading uh, power in the world, even though he's a, people think he's a weak president, but he's actually strong in the dark side of what he's doing, Well, if he is going to lead to the destruction of, of our world in the long run. Because the seeds that are being sown now, including what's happening in the Ukraine, are going to move in a direction that will spin out of control quickly. And we won't know how or what to do about it, truly. And there are new weapons on the horizon that makes uh, nuclear weapons no longer a balancing factor in power. We need to find those weapons and develop them for the sake of enlightenment, but I don't because we have to fight evil, but I don't think that's going to happen, and it could happen in reverse. We could be on the short end of the stick of that. There are kinds, and I do believe in force needed to be used against evil only, not ever to restrict the rights of people and trying to prevent them from being free or being able to create their own lives. You need to look at this from a standpoint that the future right now is looking darker each day. And it's moving towards uh, a world of the totalitarian regimes, one of them based on economic structure, which will be uh, some modified form of socialism, communism, slash, that will destroy free market economies. The object is that once you destroy free markets, you create a vacuum in which there has to be and there will be 
a form of socialism or communism or something like that that takes over. In addition, in addition, besides that disastrous idea, uh, if you look at the standards that we're dealing with now, there's going to be a religious fervor which will become totalitarian uh, under Sharia kind of principles and law. Not all Islamists are even close to being Sharia in their belief in, or, you know, in their beliefs of laws, but it will be the dominant factor, and Islamic extremism will grow by leaps and bounds, and within a year or two from right now. Now, why do I say it's going to happen so fast? Well, because the linchpin of this whole thing is the area of Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. That particular pocket is going to break out and form the first true caliphate. And they will do so with the assistance of nuclear and other type of terrible terrorist weaponry. And we will not be able to control that. The United States will not be able to. Uh, we will be behind the curve on what it's going to take to deal with the evil of that nature. Uh, Israel is doomed. Doomed. The inevitability is that uh, it either uses nuclear weapons to save itself or it will be removed from existence. Now, you need to recognize that these are not... I'm not making doom and gloom predictions here. I'm suggesting that this is going to happen because of the geopolitical changes that are happening everywhere right now. But I'm also trying to explain that this is what we're moving towards. Now, why is it that Israel is so important? You know, I mean, some people say, well, they took over the lands of the, the, the Arabs, and maybe they should have given them back, and the Palestinians have a right to be made. Well... Those are interesting, debatable subjects, and there may be some truth to them. But as the situation is at the present time, um, the Israel is the only democratic, fully democratic country, with Egypt being a very, very distant democracy. It's really not. And then if you look at the rest of the area, there really aren't any other democracies there. And why is democracy so important? Well, if people aren't running the show, then corrupt totalitarian dudes are. That's what happens. Yeah. And the caliphate will undoubtedly move something on the order of Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. With uh, I know they're not all the same kind. With Iraq then becoming eventually a settlement between the two types, the Sunnis and Sunnis, the two types of, um, of, ex, of Islamic extremism falling into one camp of, well, we'll settle the difference, differences and we'll stop being so, uh, uh, so contesting with each other. Once that happens, that's the end of it because they've got, they've got the muscle and the people and the power you're looking at Lebanon, Syria, eventually Jordan, all of them going. Egypt, Libya, it's all going to go. 
Now you could say, well, what's so wrong with that? So they got their own thing. Don't want the Islamists just be happy with that. They finally got their own caliphate. They got their own caliphate is a is a series of countries that agree to work together as one nation under Islamic law. So that you understand what that word means. Uh, and so you say, well, what's what's wrong with that? And there'll be a nuclear power, of course. Yep. Uh, and uh, won't Saudi Arabia eventually join that? Well, maybe. There's a, there's a good chance that they will, but probably the House of Saudi will fail, and what we call Saudi Arabia, along with Qatar and all the other ones, will just be part of this whole big caliphate. Or maybe there'll be a second caliphate with different ideas to some extent, but still the same kind of thing. Now, is that really dangerous? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because... Uh, the peculiarity of this particular group of people is that if you aren't with them, you're not just an enemy. You're an enemy that needs to be killed. And you better think about that. In other words, they don't just say, well, you're our enemy, so we're not going to deal with you. We're not going to trade with you. We're not going to be having parties together. They want to have necktie parties and hang everybody or obliterate them in some other fashion, possibly with a nuclear weapon. So we're going to see a vast increase in terrorism. But this will become state-sponsored terrorism, unlike the present one, which in itself is plenty dangerous. All right, well, that may sound pretty bad, now, am I talking about 10 to 15 years? Absolutely. Yep. I am trying to tell you this is 10 to 15 years into the future. Uh, I know I'm starting with the negative side of this, but I gotta, I, remember, I still got about an hour and a half to go. So don't give up on me. I'm going to come up with some solutions. <laughs> All right. So, where do we go from here? Well, then you're going to have the new Soviet Empire. I don't think they'll call it that, by the way. It'll be the supreme Russian state. It'll be a single state. Uh, all of the boundaries that we presently consider existent in what was of the old Soviet Union is no longer going to be. It's going to be one country. Um, and yeah, there'll be some parts of, of that country that will be destroyed in part because they are uh, they are Muslim. Because remember... That country we're talking about, the new Russia, will be completely anti-God because it won't be completely communistic. It'll be extreme socialism uh, with high levels of totalitarianism and, of course, without question, uh, huge amounts of corruption. Throw it all together. But what's going to happen with Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the Megakis and all the other ones? It's all going to go bye-bye. The Czech Republic now. It's all going to go away. It's going to end up becoming part, even Latvia and, you know, all those. They're going to go away. They're going to be reabsorbed into the new Russian supreme state. Yep. All because Obama removed all the nuclear weapons, anti-nuclear weapons, I should say, from uh, those countries 
in a peace treaty that we signed with them, and strangely with what was the old Russia, um, 10 years earlier, but he just took it out. said, no, we're not going to do that anymore, because we want to be friends with our Russians, with the Russians, and they don't like those weapons to prevent them from being able to use nuclear bombs and stuff. They weren't just anti-nuclear bombs, they were anti-aircraft, anti-everything. So we, we took them all off the plate within months after he became elected president for the first time. And he did so unilaterally without any negotiations or anything. He just said, well, wouldn't it be fun? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. That was sort of like the fait accompli right there. Uh, so we're going to have that to contend with. And we're going to also have a failed um, European Union. Now, why is the European Union going to fail? Because it's socialism. <laughs> Most of the countries in it are anti-capitalistic. They seek and are contributing to an enlarging socialistic government that's taking over everything. It's far more than 50% in control of what's happening. And every place it goes, it destroys itself. I don't care if it's Italy or it doesn't make any difference. Spain, those countries, as they move towards more and more, we'll say, communistic socialism types of uh, economy, uh, just fail. The government takes over everything, and then the government fails because it isn't capitalistic. It doesn't create any wealth. It uses up the wealth. It destroys wealth and it enslaves the people. So the, the gradual destruction of the European, what we call the European connection, which they they think is so great, because though we're all one, um, will be um, so almost certainly coming. Any place you have a reduction in freedom a reduction in freedom. I don't care what the freedom is about. That's a red flag. So our first part of learning consciousness about the two scenarios for the future world is that idea. If you have a reduction in freedom, it's a red flag. I don't care what it's about. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you say, well, it's worth giving up this or that or this or that. No. Any reduction in freedom, red flag. The world is already on the brink. We can't survive a little bit here and a little bit there of giving up more rights. Okay, maybe you don't agree with me. Well, we'll see. All right, so the next the next uh, part of this equation, what's also, what else is going to happen? Well, if you go down under to the Australian, uh, they uh, have adopted socialism. They just elected a guy who's not a socialist, who's going to have a hard time. Now, they got rid of guns for the most part, and gun ownership for the most part, uh, in the 1990s. And this is a bad thing, because when you destroy the ability for people to defend themselves, and say, government's going to take that over for you. Not that you can call somebody if you want to, but that's the only thing you can do because you don't have a right to defend yourself. Well, now you're in big trouble. Because if you don't have the Second Amendment right of defending yourself in the United States, which we have, then 
the right to life itself is severely tarnished. It's virtually non-existent because you don't have the right to defend it. If you can't defend something, you won't. You eventually will lose it. If you can't defend something, you eventually, and that's another freedom, isn't it? You have to be free so you can defend yourself. If you're not free, then you eventually are going to lose that freedom, which is your own life. Okay, so that's part of Australia. But what's the worst part of Australia? Overregulation in general. The process is uh, getting that way in the United States, too. It's all over the place. It's an epidemic. So they're facing that issue, over-regulation, a government that controls. It's sort of an extension of Great Britain, and in many ways it's a contamination from Great Britain. Uh, But Great Britain went progressive because socialism started in Great Britain. Most people don't know this. Colonel Frank, in about 1870, started this Frankian principle of socialism to try to take have the the few brightest and, and most powerful people uh, take over the world and be, through force, the controlling body that uh, socialistically makes the world better because they know better how the world should be. That was Colonel Frank's idea. He started getting major leaders interested because obviously it was a big power trip and he was the beginning of socialism. Now, before him, a few years before him, came communism, Marx and Engels, and he read them. He wasn't sold on, on communism because com- communism uh, kept reducing the amount of wealth of the quote-unquote uh, upper class, and he said we should increase the wealth of some of the upper class as long as they're a member of our Frankian or socialistic group. That was the main difference. And, of course, eventually that became part of fascism. But the interesting thing about this is that really there wasn't much difference between the two thoughts. And I would venture to guess you put them in the same room and they actually could have gotten along pretty well. The original communists, the original sources. Okay. So it began in England, London, specifically. That's where the society was formed. began. Uh and it spread. It spread to all of the Commonwealth nations of uh, Great Britain, including Australia. And so it, it, it became part of uh, many different governments, including Canada. Uh, so, you, you know, you look at this and you say, wow, this isn't very good. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, don't worry. That's, we're going to come to some better parts. All right, what else? What else is going on that we need to be aware of? Well, um, uh, maybe I'll go back to the idea of what about wars and weapons. <laughs> we better be careful. Um, we're on the brink of discovering some ways of harming people and destroying people and machines, etc. At a uh, in a way and at a rate that's far in excess of what we can do uh, today. But within ten years, these ways, unfortunately, in my opinion will become prevalent and uh, scary. Now, I don't want to talk about them because, <laughs> because that may make sort of fulfilling the prophecy. I don't want to help make it that way. 
that they do exist and are coming more online. And, and we will not, the United States will not be able to control them, and neither will any uh, of the quote-unquote more reasonable possible countries. And it could lead to um, the development of the caliphate faster. could lead to development of super-Russia faster. It could lead to China. Now, what's so big deal about China? China is the real sleeping dragon. When um, the Japanese attacked the United States, they said, we love the, the dragon. That's one of the one of the admirals. We have awakened the, the dragon. Now we're in trouble with the bomb Pearl Harbor. But the real dragon is uh, China. China is going to take, in the next 10 years, take a position that is even more aggressive than Putin and super Russia. And you might say, well, what kind of thing is that? Well, they're going to try to go. They're going to go after Japan. Taiwan's finished. Japan, they're going to take over. They will reformulate a new Southeast Asian, uh, we'll call it... Uh, Super state, including Vietnam. And they've been leaving that alone, by the way. Partly because, believe it or not, Vietnam is too communistic. And China isn't going to be using purely communistic forms of government. They're going to use totalitarianism, of course. But they will modify that to be in accord with whatever works in terms of making them wealthier. I don't really care. They're not ide- they're not ideologues like Mao. They are really much more uh, the, the the government in China. It's much more totalitarian, corrupt, and seeking power by more subtle and much more effective means. Now the biggest power that they're going to get involves helium-3. I don't want to talk about the weapons they're going to create from it. But it's going to be related to that. And they'll be collecting that within the next five years on the moon. We ahead of us, by the way. And um, once they have that much power, it's a huge amount. It's, it's unbelievable how much power is available from helium-3 on the moon. Once they get that going, there'll be no stopping them. They will literally terrify the entire world with the, the abilities they will acquire. By then, we will, will be almost bankrupt anyway, and they will be the people calling on our debts. So you can imagine what's coming in that respect. Very dangerous thing. Very, very dangerous. You say, oh, this guy's smoking something. What is he talking about the moon for? <laughs> well, look where most of their gross product, gross domestic product, is the money going from that is going into their space program. They want to get to the moon so bad because that's where the money is. On the surface, the first four feet, the surface of the moon. 
that's where in lactin titanium dioxide is where you have all of the or most of the helium three. Helium three is an isotope; it's a different kind of helium that is mildly radioactive, but what it really is, it's a potential power source. It comes from the sun. The uh, solar wind produces it prodigiously uh, wherever it strikes. And uh, it's uh, on the moon uh, collectively in the millions of tons. A ton of it, a ton of it or less, would run the entire world if you computed all the energy in everything we use, not just electricity, all the energy for cars, using gasoline, using everything, for an entire year with one ton of helium. A pound could run a small city for you. That's, I mean, just the electric grid on a small city. That's pretty amazing stuff. And it's practical. It really is useful. There's still some technology that has to be worked out on it, but mostly that's less than probably a year's worth of work once they have the supply of helium free to work with it. The reason the technology hasn't moved ahead is just there's less than a pound of helium-3 on the whole planet right now. So you just don't have enough to be able to create the reactor that can test it and do everything that you need. But they'll have it soon, and it's coming. Okay. The other thing that's coming in terms of space is the uh, mining of all kinds of elements, not necessarily from the moon, but like from the asteroid belt and other places. Uh, that will uh, break our dependence on some of the more rare Earth issues, which are predominantly found, no chance, in China. China has most of the rare Earth elements, and uh, they're going to shut that down soon, and we'll be uh, pretty well stuck. But they will go out mining it elsewhere, and so will others. And any country that gets helium-3 will become the wealthiest of countries, guaranteed. All right, so we have some some really serious concerns about our future because the things I'm telling you about are real. They're not conjecture. They're not like pie in the sky. They are scary, real things going on today. And in the next 10 to 15 years, they will be enormously worse. Even if the better scenario, which I'm going to explain, takes place. But I'm just letting you know that these things are not going to go away overnight. We have sown the seeds from the beginnings of time when we talked about earlier. Some of them going back, unfortunately, too long ago to do anything about but some of them not that far along, and there may be ways to solve the problems of some of them. Okay. What else is uh, happening? <laughs> Our fun Friday night, we're talking about all the terrible things in the world. I know, I know. Okay. What else is happening? Well, we're facing a spiritual dilemma. That's This is probably the biggest part tonight. So, um, what's the spiritual dilemma? Uh, science has turned its back on God. In general, 
animal scientists are anti-God, just about four out of five are. That's all. And when I say anti-God, I don't mean that they're out there fighting, you know, people, well, there's no God. But they themselves don't believe in God. Now, is that a problem? Yeah, they don't believe it. Because when you say there is no God, the centers, the chakras that control our ability to sense God shut down. The spirit spheres in them don't work. And the people that are trying to create truth end up creating lies. I don't care if it's exaggerations about global warming and climate change and whatever else the nonsense is of the day, or is it just uh, something to make themselves look and feel better, like evolution proves. You've heard that. Or science tells us, medicine tells us, medical science tells us. All right, so this is a big problem because it's the spiritual side of existence that denotes us as human beings different from animals. That's the major thing. And that causes us to be, be retarded. We're, we're moving backwards in human development when the most advanced parts intellectually of our nature are being, we'll say, sabotaged by people's egotism and arrogance into a position where they falsely try to prove that God doesn't exist and promote it in almost everything that they do do. That's a real serious problem. And where is that happening? Well, just about everywhere. That's that's one of those things that is not peculiar to any particular uh, part of the world, political state. It's it's like everywhere. About four hundred five. We're lucky we got to twenty percent. <laughs> They're still hanging in there. What do we do about the 80%? How are we going to effectuate truth back into the world if the science of the world, which is the part of our civilization is supposed to be searching for truth, uh, works from the untruth, <laughs> God doesn't exist, and everything can be explained by some mechanical principle way. What are we going to do about that? Well, that's why I'm on the radio. That's why I'm talking. Here I am. Uh, Yeah, the answer is to awaken others, some of them being scientists and or engineers and that sort of stuff, as many as we can to the spiritual existence. And that the theories in metaphysics today are closer to science than most sciences. Especially if you're talking about the most advanced sciences like like quantum field theory or de-evolutionary uh, changes caused by 
certain changes in the layers of DNA which seems to be responding to thought. Those are big ideas. And they're finding those to be true. And so that gives us a different viewpoint, a different perspective, which is current. It's even almost avant-garde in regards to science. And it's a way to structure the truth through the most, we'll say, cutting edge of all of science. And I just brought up a couple aspects. There's, there's hundreds. All hitting us at the same time. They're just not coming together. And you need some spiritual metaphysics uh, training to be able to bring them together enough so they can be seen by us. Consciousness is really the way to do it. And that involves education as well. I'm big on changing things by education. I would love to have literally thousands of schools teaching people from the youngest years up about all the stuff I talk about and beyond uh, on this show. And everything dealing with, well, what people call ageless wisdom or the the newest demystified uh, ageless wisdom. And of course, I wrote the most significant book, probably, and one of the first, if not the first, that was to demystify ageless wisdom. Others are claiming they're they're doing that. (laughs) They're either stealing what I wrote or they're saying things that are pretty much off off the track. But some people are trying. I mean, it is. This is a big point. You need to be doing this to uh, counter this overwhelming tsunami of dishonest, untruthful science. It's everywhere, and caused that's caused by egotism. And it's critical that we do this because if you can't, if you don't have a society in which truth is understood in you. You have a society where corruption becomes the foundation. And this is particularly true if you go to the courts and uh, as a part of governmental system, and you look at how courts and the law are being dealt with, and they're very corrupt because they don't seek truth. Uh, and there should be a standard incorporated within the Constitution of every country that requires court systems to find truth and not to follow the law, at least in terms of uh, uh, the conducting of uh, any type of legal procedure. So anything that challenges law should not be based entirely on the law. It should be based upon finding the truth. Difficult, because that requires far more consciousness on the part of judges, jury, prosecutors, uh, people involved in civil litigation. I got a really good idea about civil litigation. Let me talk about that for one, one minute only. Civil litigations are strange because they seek the truth the least in comparison to some forms of criminal investigations. 
criminal investigations end up finding some truth because the battleground is somewhat about that, somewhat. But in civil litigation, it's uh, kind of more about money and uh, uh, how how the case is presented to people, oftentimes without regard for truth, but for for regard of uh, the amount of uh, influence you can get over, say, a jury or a judge. Sometimes it's corruption in terms of influence on either, but mostly judges. When you have that kind of system, it's open, ripe for corruption. The way to drive it out is to limit the term of both judges and limit the term of uh, a way, the way that there are reviews on things, the idea of appellate courts and uh, superior and supreme and all this business is uh, unfortunately defective. There needs to be a greater review of process and mandates that have to do with protecting the rights of people's freedoms and some examination of attempt of the truth. So you almost have to have uh, exculpatory kinds of agencies overseeing some courtroom activities, not all of them. And so you don't have a single judge saying, well, this is what I'm going to permit in my courtroom, and that's it. Because if you could understand that, that's just ripe for abuse of power and all kinds of things, which are never any longer found to be part of the problem, which that is the problem. But nobody is there to do anything about it. Appellate courts try to uh, find some way that it isn't an abuse of power for a judge to ignore any law or to do anything. You know that. They're not there to protect people. They're there to protect the judge. Well, weird. Okay, so that's obviously not a system that works. If you want to change that, you've got to get into the nitty-gritty of what's wrong. So they get rid of... Uh, a mandate that an appellate court has to try to uphold the lower court's ruling, and instead the mandate needs to be to find truth and to make sure that it was correct, the law was correctly and uh, completely followed by the lower court, or there's no law. You just have some guy with a feeling, an opinion, a bias, doing the judging. Oh, he may rely upon certain, or she may rely upon some certain aspects of law, but almost always with a tremendous bias in some direction or another. And those are the issues that need to be addressed and prevented from continuing. Can we make it better? Sure. And can it be done even for civil issues as well as uh, criminal? Sure. There are, there's much more better ways of having a court, and one of them, by the way, is no more single judges. you got to have three judges. This goes back to Atlanta. Why three judges? Because at least two of them have to come together for a decision. And that decision has to be based upon not just some bias, but it has to they have to come together about the law. And I would make it that if the law is not followed, even if one of the, two, of the three 
disagrees about the law being followed, it automatically goes to a sort of appellate court to at least resolve that matter at a minimum. So all three judges have to agree that the law has been faithfully followed. That's a good thing, believe me. And then the other part is truth. The, the judges I have the obligation to say how they resolve finding the truth in the man. And you can say, well, that's what we have juries for. Well, we shouldn't have juries. Yeah, we shouldn't have juries. Juries are, unfortunately, the blind leading the more blind. <laughs> okay? And, you know, the juries are not capable of determining truth because they aren't conscious enough sometimes. They don't understand the law. And what they're told about the law is biased from the judge anyway. So why don't you want to have juries that then, well, instead I would have uh, a uh, jury, so to speak, but not of peers, but a jury of people who uh, are like judges, so to speak, who have uh, been proven to have reasonably good consciousness and thinking, etc., and who are randomly selected for each kind of uh, trial that they're dealt with or each kind of thing they're trying to deal with. And that would be a better system, in my opinion, than the one that we presently have. I like the idea of people being judged by their peers in a system where cases used to be simple and the ideas were very obvious. That's not today. That's maybe hundreds of years ago. That's the only time that might have been possible to do. Today it's silly the way we have the system. But that's it for right now. In this country and in some others that follow that kind of idea. I'm suggesting a change, though. I'm suggesting that the truth is a big part of it, and it's also part of the sort of truth. Is both law and science share the truth realm, and both of them have serious problems in finding truth. Most of it is egotism. Most of it, no more. I would actually give tests to people, even judges, to make sure that they weren't egotistical before they could even assume to have such power. Even a, even a, even a minor magistrate-type judge, you know, like on a city basis or something. I would say they, they too, everybody, should. if you're in that kind of position, you need to be open-minded. And you need to be humble enough to look for truth and not easily possessed by evil which is a whole other issue. Wow, a lot to be said there. All right, so we're looking at these two scenarios, and, and we're coming to the conclusion that the thing looks bad. We're looking so bad, it's scary, you know? And I have only touched on the the really serious issues. Education. i got to bring in education. The progressives have in this country, the United States, have taken over most of the education. But it isn't just here. It's predominant almost everywhere. If it's not a progressive system, it's a, it's a totalitarian of some other nature, it's still the same problem. Within the educational system, the process needs to be parents first, always parents first, then the children, then the were called process of education. Now, why are parents first and not children first? 
Well, if children really understood what they needed to get, I'd say put them in there. They, they're, they're people too, right? But they don't. Uh, so children to me is anybody like under 18. They need the assistance of the parents to help them to find the best way for them to become educated. That's my principle anyway. Maybe there's some exceptions to that. Maybe we can find a super conscious 10-year-old. Maybe it's in our heart. And that person probably doesn't need a parent. But in most cases, it's parents first. They need to be the ones brought in to become most concerned and most conscious about what's best for their children to learn. And it needs to be truly an individual decision, not like when we're, you're, we're forcing you to send your kids to the school or that school, and that's it. And you can't, if you want to send them to some kind of charter school and you're in New York City, well, they don't cooperate with our uh, corrupt system of uh, labor unions. So that being the case, we won't let them go to that school. (laughs) That's right. Okay. That's government first, right? That's the last thing you want. That's totalitarianism. You don't want government first involved with anything. Government last. If it's at all. All right. So you've got You've got to deal with it from that perspective. Children come second because they are the obvious goal is to help raise their consciousness and educate them in some levels of knowledge and then skills. But it should go in that order. Right now, it goes in the opposite order, (laughs) which doesn't help because if you're not raising consciousness, which sometimes is the case, the kids get out of the situation and they... They're not any better off than they were to begin with. Sometimes they're just more egotistical. Because that's what that kind of education teaches. It actually makes them that way. So education is a big deal for me. Uh, I think it's a big deal in our scenario. Because schools and education are moving almost exclusively in the wrong direction. You can say, well, I heard about charter schools and certain states are really doing well and so on. That's true, except the national government is trying to defeat that, and so are a lot of big-time corrupt pressure groups, including teachers. So you've got to look at it from the standpoint, who's got the power and what are they doing with it, not who has the right idea and who should we support, because those people may not have any ability to make changes in the near future. Just like is happening in New York City as I speak. So when you when you deal with this sort of thing, you, you really have to see it for what it is. It's corruption again. It's this progressive power movement. And it's the idea to get rid of uh, spiritual principles and God out of education. And for a lot of people, they say, well, that's good. I don't want any, I don't want that kind of education. I want only education that has nothing to do with God. Okay, that's fine. Those people can go to their kinds of schools, and they'll see what happens. Maybe it'll be good for their kids, or maybe it won't be. And then they won't think that that's such a good idea. Even if they still don't believe in God, they might say, well, it's better if they go to a religious school or a spiritual school, because they're getting, somehow the kids are coming out better there, so I'd go along with that, you know, because that has happened all throughout history. 
Not so much today, but it has been in the past. Why do you think people spent tons of money sending kids to schools that they didn't even belong to the religion of? In some cases, this is true. Because they knew that the kids coming out of those institutions seemed to be better educated. All right. So, education is a huge issue because the next generation, the generation that are in school right now, are our last great hope. If we can't get through to them, the gap in time, because each generation is 20 years apart, uh, will be too great, and we could end up with the world in a spiral down that we won't recover from. It's really possible. I'm not saying the end is going to be this century, even, but the beginning of the end will be. That's why it's the future. The future is like education. And that's why the progressive side of things and the people who are in the socialism or, or totalitarianism of any side go right to the beginning of school. If you talk about the Islamic extremists, what do they do? They start all the kids in an extreme program of what we call radicalism. Right? I mean, there's no other way to describe it except that, I think. And their principles are that this is the only way to teach a child. A way which is almost completely closed-minded, violent, hideous, anti-women, anti-gays, anti-science, anti-everything that isn't Sharia law, or if they're not Sharia, then in uh, some way law to the king or the, the, to, the, to the head of the system, whatever it might be. It's all about the power and control manipulation system. And they brainwash the kids to do Palestinians. Look what's going on there. I mean, how crazy it! These mothers say, "Well, I'm so glad that my son went and blew himself up, or my daughter, because after all, they gave their life for Allah, for God." And Allah said that we, this is this is prescribed by our leaders that we are in a we're in this terrible fight for for the hearts and souls of our of our people. If we don't kill others, it, it will, we will be imprisoned by the Western standards, the horrible things that the Christians do and everybody else, and the terrible Jews. They just want to make us into their thing. There's millions of people who are, are Muslims that actually live in Israel, which is kind of weird. And most of them are not radical. All right, so we, we look at this situation and then we say to ourselves, wow, I'm going to do a real quick spray here. My voice needs a little bit. Of... We say, wow, how are we going to change this? This is, this is just scary as all get out. Because, you know, my my first scenario... From in 1992, it's all come to bear, including the election of Obama. No, I didn't know him by name. 
but I knew who he was. And, I mean, it's all come about that that's the negative side of things. How are we going to change that so that it works? Well, there are some ways to do this. One of them is that there, if you look at science, one of the things that people are most concerned about is health and living better and more longer lives. So, like the group I'm associated with, that we, we have come up with stuff to do that. Now, granted, the present uh, political climate is such that we're facing tremendous pressure to not be able to do this sort of thing because they're trying to stop it. But, you know, we've got effective treatments for things that are untreatable and dangerous and terrible diseases. Untreatable, terrible diseases we have effective treatments for. Uh, can we do anything about it? We can't advertise that. I can barely talk about it. I can't even tell you what it is right now. But it, the thing is, because if you have something serious going on with you, you should contact us. You know, talk to you about it, maybe. But the thing is that that's one way, because people are so, so fearful of diseases. Medical practice right now is going the wrong way, terribly, but um, desocializing it, or at least going around it with uh, supplements and herbs and things that we deal with, by using chi energies and changing the way it functions in the body, then you can help people, and that's a way for people to move more towards a spiritual life, because once they see that part of themselves improving, and they say, well, maybe this God thing isn't completely crazy. You know? maybe, it's a, maybe it's a good thing. And so that's one area where we can... It's science. That's really science. It's also some art about it. And it's a big deal. There's some hope there. And that that could begin as a cracking mechanism. I already mentioned schools and education. Starting some schools right from the very beginning, like four years old, get kids in school. And it's like a preschool thing. And uh, start teaching them some of the demystified ageless wisdom. Not the stuff in, you know, from 100 years ago, which is almost completely not understandable by even adults. You couldn't teach that to young kids. They would look at you and go, huh? What are you talking about? You don't even understand. How am I going to understand? But you can take these same ideas I talk about here. And they can be made simpler and easier to understand, but much less complete and comprehensive, but not needed to be for children. We can do this. And uh, also for young adults and also for people in college. I mean, all ages, this could be done. And I would like to see a couple of these schools for every age group, so maybe several of these schools in each state at a minimum in the United States, and then in all other parts of the country, as much as it could be done, depending upon the political climate that would allow or disallow it. I mean, even if it had to be a supplemental program, and you can't replace the regular school system with it because the government wouldn't allow it. Well, maybe just open up a supplemental program. Kids go for an hour or two every other day or something. But you see, this is what I foresee as the as the way to counter what presently is taking place, particularly now that we're in what I consider to be like the last generation before the system becomes so 
intractable, so unchangeable that it won't matter what we do. So there's a, I, I see this as a big deal that we do this. Now, would that take a huge amount of effort and money? Yeah, you're not kidding. That's what we're here for, though. We're trying to do that. Believe me, we're trying to do it. But uh, we're under attack all the time. Every slight effort we make to do something of greatness is followed by enormous force to try to stop us. Now, I'm not paranoid. Well, I probably should be with all the things that happen. Okay, so uh, what 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 else can can be done? Well, I suggested this in a class the other night. Um, there are some means of of quote unquote weaponizing um, that the West can do, so to speak, the Western freer countries that might uh, alleviate the threat of terrorism especially, and some other threats of war, period. Um, I'm not going to talk about exactly tonight as I did in this class, because some of it I'm not so sure I, I want everybody else to know about. But it is possible. We're, we really have the technology now to not mostly put lives of, especially young people, young adults, at risk, uh, or their body parts or whatever, their health, their welfare, um, to protect ourselves from forceful infractions on our freedoms and ability to survive. And we should be using these most aggressively. Now somebody says, oh, it's drones, right? Not exactly. I'm thinking about more like intelligent machine kind of stuff. But but still controlled by people, not, uh, not you know, on their own. You know, somebody told me about the Terminator and Skynet thing. No, definitely not that because you do have to worry about not that machines can become fully conscious, but they have a machine sort of consciousness which could be manipulated by evil to do the opposite of what we were thinking about. And that, I guess, is part of the concept. Although in those stories, usually the machines themselves become like as conscious as people. That doesn't quite... It's not going to work that way. But it doesn't have to. It could be just that someone else is controlling them, which is bad. I came up with a solution for that. But the... The important thing here is that part of the reason today we're not dealing with evil is because there's such a fear of war. Wars are terrible. You don't just go to war and, you know, lose a few guys. You lose tons of people, and it's a horrible, horrible disfigurement. So if we replace a lot of those people with with mechanical uh, fighting machines that are mostly benevolent, I'll explain that in a minute, um, that's way, way safer because, and there's going to be less fear. Now you could say, well, fear, fear of war is great so that people don't fight. Now, not when you got evil. Evil doesn't care about lives. So we have to not have to care about lives by changing the round rules and the way we fight. That's, you got to fight evil because if you don't fight evil, it will take over. It uses force here in this world. All right, the, the the other thing I was going to say about the relationship of benevolence here, uh, it's entirely possible if you make a machine that's a hundred times more powerful than a human being, it doesn't have to kill in order to prevent most of the enemy, quote-unquote, from doing harm. We might be able to literally stun people, semi-imprison them, 
and then erase half of their personality and just say, go home. <laughs> they say, erase part, half of their personality. Now, I'm not talking about a full lobotomy. I'm talking about erasing a part of their personality that has become so selfish and dark that it's destructive to everything, including itself. I know it sounds like a crazy idea, but it's not as crazy as uh, having the whole planet go evil. Maybe this is something that we do need to consider. He said, well, isn't that brainwashing? How about, does that not uh, torture of some sort? Is that against the Geneva Bacchicus? Now, it's not against any of that stuff. Because if you have a personality which is evil or and or extremely dark, and you can enlighten it by erasing it without replacing, because you can't force people to think a certain way, but you can erase something that is destructive in a person, or at least stun it so it doesn't work for at least uh, five or ten years or twenty years. It might return, you let it return, but under the guise of it, the person gaining more consciousness, so even if it returns, the person won't be inclined to become evil and want to kill people. Because, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. The enemies of us are not enemies who want to throw bananas at us or tomatoes. They want to come in and kill us in very crude and mean ways. Right? Okay, well, then you've got to have something that's equal force. And one of those things might be to erase the part of the personality that's doing that for at least a while, anyway. Maybe it isn't even permanent. I've come up with some ideas how that could be done. No, I'm not going to say it on the air. But um, it could be done. We have we have methods that would work. I'm not talking about lobotomy. No. Nothing so crude. Nothing so crude. But you have to understand something about metaphysics in this situation, not just biology and physics and medicine. Those will not help you get to the place I'm describing as a potential solution. It's a, and it, it needs to be under the protection and guise of highly conscious people who are very spiritual. Uh, not just anybody should have such abilities or powers to use on anyone else. You see what I'm saying? But it's certainly better, in most cases, than killing people. And it's certainly better than modernizing them or something terrible, gruesome like that. It has it has a potential, and it's real, and it could be put into action in less than two years, full development. All right, so you look at this and you say, "Wow!" Then maybe if we have put all this together, we have some ways to start changing the world. Yeah, we do. Uh, get to the moon. Well, give me about $5 billion, and I can get us to the moon and back in about six months to a year with all the H3 we want. <laughs> HE3. All the HE3 you want in the world. You're going to have a bunch of helium free. And, and, you know, we could even start selling it on the open market, make some money. Everybody can enjoy it. It's terrific. Right? Right, and be able to go anywhere in the world in a couple hours for almost no cost at all. Heck, you think Amazon's great with their little things that might fly and drop the 
drop your packages off, you'd be, probably get your packages in, you know, 15 minutes from from across the country. <laughs> Possible. I'm just talking about logistics could become something really phenomenal. Huh? But um, beyond that, beyond that, there's also the ability to prevent totalitarian governments from being very effective in numerous ways that haven't really been, uh, we'll say, fully developed. You've heard some of them, well, why don't we stop them from being able to make trades on certain exchanges or this or that, or weaken their currency and blah, blah, blah. blah. Well, instead of looking at the negative, how about the positive? Why don't we take all of their neighbors and make them strong and wealthy and, and et cetera, and start encroaching on them instead of vice versa by economic standards and by education, as I said earlier, and other things. Wouldn't be so hard to do, uh, particularly with all the wealth the United States has, as an example. Uh, you know, people say, well, it'd be so hard to get the natural gas over there. Really? You think so? I don't know about that. I think we could do pretty good at it, actually. First of all, it can be all liquefied if we really wanted to, but that's an added step. It's uh, not really desirable. And there's there's other ways of doing it, though. And you can achieve a uh, a price that will benefit everybody. So if people are overly dependent upon uh, a country like Russia's natural resource of gas, Make up for the difference in your your home fleet. Mm-hmm. Heck, you can just send a bunch of shale oil and some other stuff and use that to produce oil over there. It doesn't have to be produced there. Just dump it onto a few big giant tankers and bring it over to their part of the world and then refine everything there if you really want to do it. There's a number of possibilities. But if we won't really need to make a difference, we've got to stop people from who are crazy to kill us and crazy to do harm from joining together. And we need to disarm them in terms of their uh, most serious weapons. Chemical weapons and nuclear weapons can be disarmed. I am, again, not going to tell you exactly how because, unfortunately, there's reverse engineering problems. But um, you could pretty much disarm most nuclear weapons as they are presently used and held in a matter of hours. But I won't tell you how. And then, in addition to that, uh, you can also uh, severely damage someone's supplies of uh, of, um, nerve gases, chemical weapons that that uh, are being used. Biological is a little different, but it's possible to do that uh, very effectively. I don't know why we have to go into a country like Syria and uh, beg to get uh, 10 or 15% of their chemical weapons after a year uh, and find ourselves not doing very well with that because that's what they intended to happen and that's what Putin also intended to happen. Uh, when there are ways to, to disarm those same weapons, fairly easily. And you might say, well, what's that? And I say, well, <laughs> give me a call and tell me who you are. <laughs> um, here, Here's the issue. 
here's the issue. We've got to be a lot more conscious and smarter, a lot faster than we ever have in the past. Just like we're in a major, major world war, just like happened in World War II, we did that sort of stuff, but only when our very existence depended upon us. And we don't believe that right now. That's the problem. And by the time we do, I don't know if there will be the abilities we have to do, you know, then. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So I'm hoping that tonight's show will kind of get some people thinking about this and say, well, maybe there's some stuff we can do, you know, that will make a difference. And uh, economics, we can change the economic uh, strategy of the world. Uh, The West particularly has a lot more resources than other places. The United States is supposedly the richest country, though we're falling apart, and we're going to probably not be soon. But we can change all that. We can uh, make it so that if government becomes much smaller everywhere, uh, then the amount of wasted resources could be spent on overcoming the evil in the world and producing a true panacea, or almost panacea, for most people. Not by giving them things, but by giving them freedom to create for themselves and education to help them do that. And maybe support in a hundred other ways that are tangential but not controlling to their life. That makes every bit of sense to me. Now, you might say, well, hasn't that been tried? No, it hasn't. Uh, oh, we had the Marshall Plan after World War II and stuff. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that most of what has been done has not followed spiritual principles. It has had good intentions with bad methodologies. Sometimes it worked because the intentions were good enough that they overcame some of the bad methodologies. But, you know, that's the best we've done. And then, like in the world today, we have a lot of bad intentions with bad technologies and other things. So that's all going against what could be a major improvement in the way the world is functioning. All right? Now, in terms of things like, um, as I said about laws, if we, need, if, we, if we can convince nations that freedom and protection of the rights of the individual is paramount, and that the the restriction of government is also paramount, then we might be able to save some of the more Western countries, like in Europe, etc., from self-destruction. How are we going to do that? Well, we need to show some examples. Maybe go to some of those countries and just start off small with some kind of small community, proving these people this, this really works here. Why don't you try it on a bigger scale and see if you can make it happen? I think you've got to go to the countries themselves. You can't do it here and say, look what we're doing here, because they're too far away. They're not connected to our culture, and they're not used to the ideas. So you you got to go there. I mean, you got to go wherever there's need for freedom. You have to go to, the, to there. And sometimes you're going to have to go there when you're not welcome. And that's going to be a tough problem. 
very tough. Now, does that mean you just fight them and say, well, it's going to be our way or the highway? No, there, there needs to be a lot of finesse about negotiation, some degree of investment, we're called, in the help that people need but don't necessarily understand. And others that are corrupt will try to prevent. We've got to have a whole system on how to deal with that combination of what looks like a uh, terrible uh, maelstrom of destruction and to turn it around while it's happening, while the, while the terrible maelstrom is, is going on. We need to still be able to counter it and turn it into something better. That's where it takes great, let's say, political understanding, tremendous uh, ability to be reasonable and negotiate, and find the common areas that are good for people and get people pointed in the direction of God because that will solve most of the problems. Everybody believing in God and a God that makes sense, not some, you know, we'll call it fantasy, but something that they, they can say, well, this I can understand, it, this I can see that this could be true. That's why Angel's Wisdom has a good chance of being some service here. That could be what will be helpful. That doesn't mean I'm talking about getting rid of any religions at all. No, I'm not talking about that. Saying these are all an adjunct to religion, not a replacement for an adjunct. All right. Well, hopefully this is starting to sound a little better. Some people say, well, I thought he was going to really leave us with a bitter taste in our mouth, but maybe there's some answers here that we can follow and, and, and get rid of. Okay. What else can we do that is uh, possibly a solvable way of dealing with these scenarios that could move into a direction that would be disastrous for the world? Well, uh, we're going to need in the United States to be in the leading country to uh, put the kibosh on most of the problems that are presently growing. Uh, we're going to need to enact changes in our laws here, and a few other countries that are leading countries need to, need to do something similar. Maybe even as bad as the United States is right now. So that, and this, so that within a couple of years, we're back on track because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, it, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. We're already in serious trouble. The third ray has uh, started to go into significant decline, meaning that communication between people is governed more by egotism and astralism than it is by reason and truth. And so that's something that we need to work on, too. And the way you improve the throat chakra is to make sure that everybody who understands that principle is trying to discipline and improve their own throat chakra in the face of extreme selfishness in the way people communicate to them and with them. So that others have to, and if they want to communicate, are going to be forced to some extent to let go of the darkness and, and, and to be a bit more enlightening or enlightened, enlightened 
so that they can communicate in a way that's meaningful for them. And in many cases, it will also be profitable in some financial and material gain sense. So you use all these techniques, these methods, to help people, lift them up out of the mess, because they are going to be suffering more and more every day now, and they have been for a couple of years, with this loss of use of the throat chakra sense, which is a third-ray sense in each of the three bodies. Uh, it makes them more egotistical, less able to clearly hear what's being said to them and clearly respond, therefore, to what was said and what they wanted to say. So communication is really going in the toilet because of that. And it's leading to all kinds of problems. Families are breaking apart easier because the husband and wives are having trouble communicating. And so are they doing the same with their children? People who do business together are particularly finding it more difficult to do. We're relying more on more of the worst possible kind of communication, like email, one-directional communication without being able to even see the person. I mean, that's really bad. And an improvement of that would be, at least if you're going to do emails, it should be, it should be uh, using a picture where they see you in real, well, sort of real life talking while with some level of appearance of gesturing, etc., and in voice inflection, that would improve emails tremendously. And they still shouldn't be used for very much, but at least it would be a step in the right direction. That's a technologically possible solution, which has not been uh, exploited at this point. It should be. I would think that in six months you come up with something like that, everybody's going to switch to that kind of email. That would be my guess. Why is everything typed? Because it's the worst way possible to communicate. Oh, I'm being a little bit uh, defeatist there, but it's kind of true. Uh, I don't know. The answer is that it, nobody wants to put out the effort to do anything more than that. We have the technology to do way more than that, but nobody's really made it simple enough and easy enough to use. And For that reason, we're just stuck. Texting is even worse. Texting is like the bottom of emails. <laughs> Can we change that? Oh yeah, I guess you could. I mean, you could you could have texting just your speech, send you know, talk, send it. At least they hear your voice and inflection, etc. Work better. Of course, then people couldn't necessarily hear you in all circumstances because they might others might hear. But that could be a, a worked out too. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. The throat chakra is in a, in, a, in such a decline right now that in the near future, great disasters will start occurring because people are not communicating clearly enough with each other. Because they can't. Because of their own selfishness. They've become so, will become so egotistical that great disasters may follow because nobody believes or listens to what other people are saying about potential disaster or why it's even happening. And those are the kinds of things that we're facing, and this is really near future. I'm talking about less than a 10-year period. That's how scary it's getting. We can change all this. We can make it better. Technology is there. 
Our will has to change. We have to want it to be better. We have to demand it from those people who are going to be interacting with us so that we bring them along with us. That's another big deal. Every person needs to see themselves as part of the solution, part of the resource necessary to make things better. Take some responsibility for everything so that we can move ahead because we need that. We seriously, seriously need that, really. I know. I got it because, you know, a lot of folks say, well, it's so complicated, the world's so hard, I just want to live my own life, etc. But it isn't your life anymore. You're going to lose your life to all the forces, all the forces that I brought up in tonight's show and much more. And then you'll say, what happened? Well, I remember 10 years ago, that guy in the radio with this third version of this crazy world talking about this, and here it is. What are we going to do now? How are we going to solve this mess now? (sighs) Yeah. For the third time, I don't want to be right, okay? Let's make me wrong. Of course, then I'd be right anyway, because I still say there's a way to solve this. But the point is, let's make me wrong. Let's change the situation so that we don't end up with this, this disastrous place that could be a wonderful place, could be a beautiful place. The seeking of that is a very beneficial thing that people want it to become better. Just that one thing is important in the whole picture. Okay, let's talk about another uh, another area that uh, I, I don't think we've gone into, and that is the area of expression of we'll call it artistic ability and expression in meaning to life through the arts. Well, at the present time, partly because of this third ray issue, of the ray is not in focus, so that the, the senses of that part of us is not working very well. It's true for all life, by the way, in the world. Um, most of the expression in terms of art has become very tainted by dark, one-sided, egotistical, and in many cases, almost unbearably uh, vulgar and hostile expression. Now, why has that occurred? Well, if we go back to my original scenario, in the original scenario, I predicted that people wouldn't even know what beauty is anymore, and that ugliness would become a means of satisfying people's desires for creative expression and also for entertainment. That's when you could barely say a swear word on television or uh, there certainly wasn't any uh, overt sexuality, much less homosexuality on television, right? What's it like today? Whoa. It's the inverse of that, right? Not just television, movies in general. I mean, extreme violence, extreme sexuality, perversion in sexuality in every imagined way. 
and a lot of homosexuality, which is not exactly perversion as much as it is the need to show it so that others will find it to be acceptable. And that's immoral. That's not a moral position. Moral position is, hey, everybody has a right to express their sexuality with others as those people see fit, but not to try to make us all observe it like it should be some kind of normal part of life. There's a difference. But it's getting worse. I mean, it is literally, it's almost like monthly. There's something more radical in expression. And really, I'm not saying it because I'm against sex of any sort. It's because it's not beautiful sex. Not. In general. Could it be? Yeah, maybe. Possibly. But it's not the kind of beautiful sex that will inspire people. And that's the thing that you want. So I'm not against sexuality. I'm against ugly sexuality that doesn't inspire people. At most, it may stimulate them. In many cases, it's just kind of vulgar kind of stuff. What about violence? Same thing. There's no need to see people's guts blown apart. I mean, these kinds of vivid de- depictions of inhumanity demand sort of stuff. Okay, I got the idea, but you don't. You you can fill it in with your imagination. It doesn't. It isn't needed for the director and actors to make it that way. Same thing with writing a book, or with virtually any expression in the arts. If it's if there's a, a depiction in a picture of some kind of vulgar sexual stuff, to me that's just the need to defile something that is beautiful. And that's what's wrong with our world. I don't want to censure it. Anybody should be able to create whatever they think they want to, and if others want to look at it, that's fine. But we need to promote alternatives and have them available than nothing then have a vacuum. And there's mostly developing these days a vacuum because there's so much of art that has turned into this vulgar, massively, we'll call it, uh, ugly forms of expression for its own purpose, just to be ugly. Like, well, I want to show that the world's ugly. Well, you can show it without expressing it. You could actually show it by showing something beautiful with something less beautiful than you can by just showing something that's the most ugly thing on earth. I have a particular, uh, we'll call it, disgust for any kind of cruelty to animals or children. It really uh, troubles me. This is more personal, but I, my soul at least doesn't care for it. Uh, and my... Uh, my nature is very uh, much against it because I know it exists, but the expression of it, even if it's just acting, is 
or if it's just a picture, is unnecessary to for me to understand its existence. It could be suggested a little bit, and that's good enough, so I get it. I can fill in the mics. Thank you very much. And also having this stuff around the way it is is really bad for our children. They need not to see that because they don't have the development and the, and the maturation in their in their self-structure to be able to discern, well, this is good and that isn't. If they see it all the time, they think that that's normal. Do you really want your children becoming like some of these books, movies, and other things that are readily all over the place now? Is that how we want our next generation to be? So the way we change that is not to make any of it illegal, not to prevent any of it. Now, I don't want to even make rules about TV or anything. You can have whatever you want on TV. But let's present the opposite. Create more of the beauty and see what people want to see. It's just that it's not available. Oh, and the nonsense to be told is, well, that's what everybody wants. They want the gross, heavy-hitting, hard, violent type of... And that isn't what they want. It's just not available. That's the problem. And maybe some of the redeeming elements to the story are important, and so we have to take the bad with the good, but I don't want the bad with the good. Just give me the good, thank you. The bad, I can, I got enough of it already. I can see it. That's the way I prefer. Now, why do I say we shouldn't censor? Well, because that's really doing just as much injustice and harm as what the original thing, which is the overtness in the first place. People need to be able to express, provided it isn't to people who aren't yet adults, etc. Children should never be experiencing that sort of stuff. But adults should be able to experience whatever they choose to experience, even if it's not good for them. But there should be alternatives readily available so that people can create a beautiful good life from all that's available in the surrounding world. This I see as the way to improve our future scenarios is to tremendously increase the available beauty in everything that's done along what we'll call the fourth way. And I also believe that religion, I want to just we don't have a lot of time here, but I want to just make a mention of religion. Religion should be as open as possible to to inviting God in as a, and, and people in to worship God in whatever ways they think are best, but be open to everyone else's way instead of saying, if you don't come here, you're going to hell because the church across the street is not the real religion not the real, they don't got it. You go there, you're going to go to hell or purgatory or something bad will happen. That's crazy. That's that's just as radical as some of the people who want to kill us and do other stuff. 
that's why we need open-mindedness, because open-mindedness now, religion is really based many times on astrologies, but needs to move into a mental sphere of open-mindedness for room for everyone who wants to be in some way communicative with God. And there's lots of ways of doing that, and the different ways don't are not a net zero sum, like you could come here, but then you lose over there. You gain something from all. Not you lose something because you're coming here, you're not coming here and you're going there. and It's a negative. Because that, remember, is part of the reason we have radicalized religions. We've allowed them to develop by not being open-minded. Because if you're open-minded, someone says, well, join our radical religion. You'd say, no way, I'm an open-minded person. You're crazy. I'm not going to do that. That's silly. And it is harmful to you and to everybody else. So those religions that vanish as a radicalized, and they might remain as a good religion, but not be some kind of crazy stuff. Well, God wants you to die because you're not us. What? I mean, come on. That's like real insanity. But about probably a quarter of a billion people, of a, of a billion, a quarter of a billion people presently think that way. Wow. At least that much. It might be a half a billion. Nobody really knows. I mean, that's a lot of people. That's a very dangerous future scenario. So that's what I think in terms of that element and how we can best deal with it. Well, we're starting to do that thing, which is run out of time. And I'm hoping that you've got the general gist of tonight's show. We do have two different ways we can go in this. There are solutions, a lot more than I did cover tonight, for how to deal with this. Really, if you're interested, uh, call me or send me an email. Oh, God, I don't know about that. But, yeah, send me an email so we can talk. Not, not so we can email each other. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about the ways the world can be improved through changing what could be a nightmare scenario in the next 10 to 15 years. We need to make changes now, not wait until things are so terrible that there is literally no way out of the mess. doesn't mean it will end the world in the next 15 years. It just means it will be the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end will still take a century or two but or longer, but it still will end it. So we're we're watching a very critical time right now, and don't even realize how important our lives are and what we're doing right now to the future of the world. Most people say, well, that everybody says that every time they're alive and every time in history. But you know that's not true. There's been a lot of times in history when, for hundreds of years, it didn't matter almost what anybody did. But that's not true today. This is a crucial time. It has to do with the 
development of the human mind, the level of capability of civilization to change and develop itself in faster ways. That's the development of the lower kingdoms as an expression of us. And it's all coming together in this kind of homogenized one-time period in which nearly everything within years of each other is reaching critical mass. Nearly everything I covered tonight is in that category. And that's the that's different. That's not like 50 years ago or 1,000 years ago. It's like right now this is a big difference time. And I'm not being ethnocentric about it, even in terms of the chronology of time itself. I'm saying it's for right now, and it's real. And we need to do something to change right now. I hope I'm encouraging everybody to think about this seriously. I may not be doing another show like this for some time. So, because really, I mean, what can I say? Hopefully I'll do a show when things are really improving and be able to say, hey, we finally got it and we're doing it and congratulations to everybody who participated. Fantastic. I hope that's going to be the next show. (laughs) And I will pray for that. Well, we are out of time. I hope this has made some difference for each person because if you didn't hear the other scenario shows, they're they're available and you can go back and listen to those. Uh, If you... Uh, really want if we have the I don't know if we can get the tape to you, but of lectures that I did on the two scenarios. We also have the notes of it, so to speak, that was given on this article. Uh, but most important thing is probably what's going forward. Not what I used to say, other than it's interesting that it virtually by the year all came true. Well, until next week. This has been Niles McFarland for Why Life Is.